0: Making Media tells the story of our media business, Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this.
1: Welcome to Making Media.
2: Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier.
0: Gosh, that was such a good start to an interview.
2: Welcome back to Making Media. Our guest today is the preeminent aviation journalist, John Ostroa. John is the founder and editor-in-chief of The Air Current, which he started in 2018. It's an independent subscription media business focused on the global aerospace and aviation industries. I like to think of it as a stratechery of the skies, if you're familiar with the work of the excellent tech analyst Ben Thompson. John started blogging about the airline industry as a 22-year-old while working in politics, but he quickly became consumed by his passion and went on to work for Flight Global, The Wall Street Journal, and CNN before striking off to build his own media business. Matt and I love meeting people who are as thoughtful about the business model around media as they are passionate about creating content itself. John is a wonderful example, and he thoughtfully outlines the key decisions he's made in building the air current into the success it is today throughout this conversation. If you're left wanting more by the end, I recommend you listen to the business breakdown he did on Boeing for us last September. It's an excellent episode. Now, please enjoy this conversation with John. John, we first had you on the Colossus Airwaves doing a business breakdown on Boeing, which was excellent late-ish last year. Today, we're going to talk about the business that you have built, the air current. And as I understand it, I want to start at the beginning. You started blogging about the aviation industry as a 22-year-old while working a full-time job in politics, if I have my facts correct. I want to know at that age and that time when you weren't in the industry full-time and didn't have a huge amount of business experience more broadly, how did you find an angle on the industry that managed to capture people's interest and attention and then build the blog into what you have today? That's
1: interesting. I've always found that a good barometer is that if I am curious about something and I want to know more about it, other people usually do too. And that's never failed me. When I was 22 or 40 now, it's always been a remarkably consistent thing where if I just let my interest guide me, other people are asking the same questions and are curious about the same
2: things. This is a really interesting point because it comes back to taste, I guess. But I've always wondered whether there's a generalizable lesson there. Could you say to someone else, if they're interested in a different field, just follow your own curiosity and that will probably help you. And you'll find a following naturally as an extension of that.
1: Never stop learning. I think it's very human to want to be interested in something and to want to invest your time in knowing more about it. And I just happen to be blessed or cursed with the obsession of loving things that fly in a truly unhealthy way at times. And I will fully admit that, but it's led to good things because I feel like from my perspective, I want to know everything. And I really wanted to understand how all the pieces fit together, where you can start with a couple of folks sitting around a table with a napkin sketch for whether it's an airline or an airplane or some novel technology or something that starts as just a conversation. And the story of that from that point to actually becoming a flying machine, that's an incredible, incredible thing. And even just saying it out loud, the hair on the back of my neck stands up. Because there's just this inherent excitement. Look, we take flying and aviation and airline travel. We would love to complain about it. It is the thing we would love to stand around at parties and be like, oh, my last flight. Or, oh, it was delayed. Or, oh, the airport. Or, oh, all that. Hold on. It really is the miracle of flight. We've spent the last 120 years making something so incredible, so mundane. And it's incredibly safe. And in a few weeks, I'm going to get on. I'm going to drive seven minutes to the airport. I'm going to walk through security, I'm going to sit down in an airplane, and then I'm going to be in Singapore from Seattle. And that's an amazing thing. So when you think about what humanity has been able to do collectively to do this, something that just is so exciting to me, to think about that level of human progress, to be able to what we do together in the ecosystem of companies and governments and organizations that are required to make all this happen. And when you put that all together, it makes for a really interesting story.
2: I vividly remember you saying in the business breakdown that if people knew how hard it was to fly an airplane, they would either never complain or never fly, which I thought was an excellent line. Was everything that you have learned about the industry self-taught? Was there any part? Did you go to college learning about engineering or you ended up in politics as your first job, I think? So what's the transition? Has this all just been a self-discovery?
1: My mom likes to tell the story that when I was three years old, I asked for a Fisher Price Airport playset and then I asked for another one. And then she asked why, I was like, well, you need a place to land. So it's always been something I've been intensely interested in. So I have one formal aviation business class under my belt and one formal journalism class under my belt from my undergraduate time in George Washington University. And I have been milking them for all they're worth. Seriously, I got my money's worth out of those two classes. And I never expected that I would be a journalist. That happened very much by accident. And I would say the thing about my time and my thought about wanting to be in politics really was born from, I came from a very politically active family and very socially minded about leaving the world a better place than the way you found it. And that was the way that I felt was a really valuable contribution to potentially do that. You get into it and you see the reality of politics. I was very much part of the West Wing generation in the early 2000s. And that shaped a lot of my thinking and what I wanted to do with my life. So when came time to actually work in politics i had a lot of free time on my hands but i also loved to write but i couldn't write about politics for obvious reasons and i was working for the governor of massachusetts at the time and i was writing this briefing book in fact it was his scheduling office and i had a lot of free time in the evenings where when i moved back to my hometown all my friends from high school had moved away so i was starting fresh i was 22 23 years old so it afforded me a great opportunity to try something new and i started this blog and i could write about airplanes and I just let that guide me. And through that time, I just always understood that I thought it would be very interesting to adapt a method of covering political campaigns and presidential campaigns and sort of the on the trail type reporting to covering aviation in those days. So that was one of the big spurs where it was like, okay, I love this stuff so much. Is there a way to adapt a publication, adapt a style of reporting to do this? And by pure coincidence, happenstance, whatever you want to call it. I stumbled my way into covering Boeing and Boeing at a time when they were struggling with developing the 787 Dreamliner. And there was this incredible global business story that was unfolding around me. And here I am, I read it back to myself and I say like, really, that really unfold that way? But I was 22, 23. I was making $19,000 a year after taxes. And here I am just trying this new thing, and actually having success with it in terms of people would come out of the woodwork to talk about it and getting all these different perspectives. And I just remember I'd get home at six thirty in the evening, seven o'clock from the office, and then I'd be awake till like three o'clock in the morning because I'd be talking to people who are on the assembly line in South Carolina or exchanging emails with people in Italy in Japan and Kansas and Seattle. And it would just be this totally mental split screen of my world when I was in my early 20s, where I also think it was good that I was naive enough to not know what I was getting myself into. Because these are multi-billion dollar programs and the amount of money at stake is tremendous and the amount of national prestige and industrial might is tremendous. And I think had I been older and maybe a little more seasoned in terms of, oh my God, what am I up against as I'm going into this? I think being naive And also, in the early days of the internet, you had no idea if anyone was reading you. It was like, I'm just going to throw this out there and see what happens. And I think there was a little bit of that early on. And I always wanted to be right. But I would also say that in those early days, I also probably earned the trust of a lot of folks who did this professionally, who would help me learn by being wrong. And they would want to correct me. And in the early days of the internet, they didn't come at you and say, I want to bring your house down like they do now. Culturally, it has changed considerably. But people I've known for almost two decades, came out of the woodwork to say, hey, it's actually this. And here's how I'm going to help you learn. Because, you know, the passion that I feel toward this industry and this product and this business is also shared by them as well. And they want to share what they know. But they have this very soda straw view of the world in terms of what they're working on, but they want to share their knowledge. So always being open to that has always been something that I think has been either, I don't know if I've done it deliberately, but certainly I think I just instinctually always let that be my guiding light
0: fastest way to get the right answer on the internet is to post the wrong answer on the internet. It's something that has consistently rung true. I am curious about the audience that you attracted in those early days, and then how that's evolved over time. I'm consistently amazed at the aviation industry, its enthusiasts. I get the sense that you have a lot of people in business and government that are reading. But do you have any sense of what that split looks like in terms of who is predominantly reading you and how that's changed over time?
1: It's interesting. So I think you're right. Early on it was very much I started off as an enthusiast. That was my driving force. I probably would call myself a fanboy to some extent of all things aviation. And I've had to mature and evolve beyond that to be like, okay, now let's treat the thing we love with real respect and hold it accountable. So I think early on there was a lot of individual enthusiasts, and I think there still are. And I think that what I've always tried to do is balance The social media presence that the air current and I and my team have to ensure that we're still connected to that community, but also realizing that none of that is possible without the business government audience, suppliers, labor, all that stakeholders in the business who have a genuine need to know this stuff in terms of what product you create and what intelligence and insight you deliver for their needs to make informed decisions. So it has been a balance. Early on when I first started The Air Current and the eye became a wee over time. But in 2018, I was pretty uncomfortable with the idea of a paywall. I really was. I didn't like it because I knew that I had benefited tremendously from being able to reach a really large audience. And The Wall Street Journal is very much paywalled, a paywalled subscription-based publication. So there was getting used to that. But when I went to CNN briefly for about 18 months, there was no paywall. So everything was open again. So I could have that different conversation. So going behind a paywall, I was uncomfortable at first because I knew that there were people that were not going to be able to join. And the mistake I made early on was how you build a paywall and how you price a paywall and how you actually manage the economics of a business. For something like this, where the mistake I made, I've got the scars to show for it is don't be all things for all people. You have to understand your audience, what they're willing to pay for, and more importantly, what they value. And if you lean into that, you stop apologizing very quickly for the paywall because it's either that or it doesn't exist. So that's what ultimately makes any of this
2: what we do possible. And it wasn't obvious at the time even that you should be doing a subscription model and then the paywall, obviously you can make it really strict or you can have a few articles free. Why did you choose to do a subscription-based model early on?
1: I think I always instinctually knew there were a few pieces. Number one, an advertising model Whether you realize it or not causes you to instinctually optimize for the advertiser. You're trying to get eyeballs. You know, I think if you don't have a paywall or you say this is free, I think there's a real risk that you are either deliberately or subconsciously saying free has no value and the value drives what the business is and what it does fundamentally. Because if you say, well, this is free to everybody and we just need traffic then the value is in the traffic, not the content. And it causes you to optimize for the wrong things. Because again, you think about volume and it's puppies important. That's the lowest circle of internet traffic. So it descends in that direction, whether you intend for it to not. So if you optimize fundamentally for the content and saying the content is the value, good things can't help but happen. So I knew that also just from a mental bandwidth perspective, As an individual starting the air current, I couldn't editorially manage the idea of having advertisers and managing all of the content flow. You can put the Chinese wall in your head between sales and editorial is impossible when you're just one person. So it became a necessity to separate that for yourself. And I think what you do when that happens, and one of the really virtuous things that has happened as we've grown, is that you're actually de-risking your own business model. Because if you have one to five advertisers who are driving your publication and underpinning your ability to generate editorial content, fundamentally what you're saying is, oh, if you lose one, oh my God, we're down 20%. If you lose two, we're down 40%. They're very mercurial sometimes in terms of how this goes down and the reasons they decide like, oh, you're not covering our area of interest enough. Or you wrote this thing about us that we really don't like, so mm, eh, we're going to scale back for next year. And it's like, no, you don't have a role in a business like that. So what you do is if once you get a critical mass of subscribers, what you're saying is that number one, you're having a conversation with your subscribers. You're not having a conversation with your advertisers because that's who you're optimizing for. So within that, what you say is the risk is so significantly spread out that if one subscriber decides not to renew or one corporate subscriber decides not to renew or renew at the same level or whatever, your risk is distributed differently. No one organization or individual has the ability to significantly tank your business so that has been a real foundational cushion for us to be able to say, okay, yes, the needle moves. Yes, churn moves up and down. We have very, very low churn, which is fantastic. But generally speaking, it just gives us that ability to say no one person or organization has the ability to drive anything that we do. And that lets us do things that others don't feel like they have the flexibility to or all of that. So I think one of the other pieces here is that when you are optimizing specifically for the relationship with your subscribers, you also have to be incredibly, incredibly cognizant of their time. Everything around you is asking for your time. Everything on the internet is asking for you to click. It's asking for you to stop and watch whatever it is. So if you're actually asking someone to give you their resources to read something, my God, it better be good. You better deliver something that is worthy of their time and their money, because time is the most precious thing, followed by their resources. And if they're investing both of those in you, you constantly have to be justifying the value. And I say this to my team all the time. And we say this to each other. It's a proof of performance because every single year when someone decides to subscribe or resubscribe or renew their subscription or quarterly or whatever their plan is, you have to say, okay, with the last 12 months and the last three months, was it worthy of their coming back? And so far, the answer has been yes.
2: And what does the team look like today? For a good while, it was just you. How have you managed to scale that up? Because on the flip side of you talking about the risk of advertisers leaving and that type of model, for a long time in these creative-led businesses, the risk is on the person, you, and anything that may befall you. And as you bring more people on, that diversifies that risk to some extent. But how has that evolution played out? And where does the team stand today? It's
1: interesting. So over five years, Each year has been a unique strategic challenge. So when it was just me in that first year, almost 18 months, so it was probably mid-2018 through early 20, it was just me. So a lot of that was figuring out, okay, I can't scale myself. If I double my output, will the quality be maintained? And will I double the revenue that comes with that or the subscriber base that comes with that? And the answer is no, that's not possible. So I remember those first 18 months were really, really challenging in terms of figuring out what the right model was and what the right balance. And again, I learned a ton for the mistakes that I made. The pandemic was really the turning point. It was that early 2020 and coming out also of the initial 737 MAX grounding and the crashes in Ethiopia and Indonesia was really a chance for us to cover things differently. And it was, again, just me at that point. So it really focused in terms of where we were spending our time. And again, There are people who will say, Hey, why don't you cover this? Why don't you cover this? Why don't you cover that? And I said, Well, I'm only one person and we have to pick and choose. We have to pick and choose. We can't cover everything, but what we do cover, we have to cover really, really well. So as I got into early 2020, we had a gentleman named Courtney Miller, who was a brilliant aerospace aviation analyst. He used to fly regional jets, used to sell regional aircraft for Bardi Aerospace. He joined us and really became our managing director of analysis. So our business model at the beginning of 2020, was shifting between a combination of journalism and analysis. And I think that it came at a time where the world really needed that. Court joined us on, I think, February 1st of 2020. And the world fell apart three weeks later. So I remember having a conversation with him late one night, early on. This was probably three weeks into February. I said, I'm calling Audible on this one. I think everything we're going to do for the rest of 2020 is going to be pandemic-related. And COVID drove, look, the airline industry collapsed. 95, 97% down in terms of global traffic. So it was an apocalyptic moment. and It was also a very clarifying moment for what we were doing because there were plenty of nights that I would lay in bed being like, oh my God, on the other side of this, we're either going to come through this better than when we went into it, or we're going to be dead because there's not going to be an airline industry to cover. So I didn't know what it looked like, but I think what it taught us, and I think this is really, really, really valuable for anyone thinking about a niche publication that really specializes in either one particular area, that in good times, people need good information. In bad times, they really need good information. So it's almost countercyclical in that regard. So it really taught us where we needed to be focusing our attention and what people wanted. And we came through that period bigger and stronger than I would have expected, given the state and the magnitude of the crisis that was surrounding us. So. As we grew, getting back to your question about the size of the team, in early 22, we added my colleague Alon Head, who is an absolutely extraordinary journalist, and she's a gold seal flight instructor, helicopter pilot, and has been covering the new business of all these new entrants who want to be electric air taxis. So Joby, Archer, Beta, these new companies that really believe that with electric technology are going to change the way we move. And she brings a level of coverage and experience that no one else was doing and has really given us the ability to cover not just the traditional established aviation world, but also this new emerging world where you have everyone from suppliers who are wondering if these guys are going to survive and regulators who are helping this process along, but also airlines who are wondering what this means for their business and also investors who want to know if this is something where they should be putting their money or not. So to come at that from that perspective allowed us coming off of the pandemic to be able to dive into this. So, okay, we did 22 and 23 together. Again, more growth really underpinned our model. But a year ago, right about this time, Courtney wanted to grow his side of the business in a way that we both decided was probably not going to be compatible with the year current. And that was good for him. It was good for us. And still one of the most amazing people I have ever worked with. But that allowed us to really think about the journalism and really doubling down on that. So we spent the rest in 23 really digging in on the editorial front. So we just added a gentleman named Will Geisbond, is a new staff reporter covering airports and business aviation and general aviation, three areas that have generally not been covered as well as we really have seen. And given the importance of what goes on in the air, we really wanted to have someone to really dig in on understanding how airports were operating, because that makes everything possible fundamentally. Nothing happens in the air without the infrastructure on the ground. So we really wanted to build a new beat around that. And we're in our early days around that. And we also have a great contributing editor, Ned Russell, who's doing airline coverage for us, predominantly North America, but we're going to stretch him globally if we can. So right now we're a team of four to five. And through this, I would also say I have an absolutely extraordinary operations and editorial director, my colleague Howard Slutskin, who literally makes the trains run on time. I'm only one person, and when my brain is split between 17 different things, just things keep on rolling. So he is our chief of staff and makes sure everything operates. And so nothing we could do would be possible without him. So look, this team is our secret sauce, which is why I am so open about our model. Our business model is not a secret, and I don't intend it to be a secret because I think other people will benefit from hearing our lessons on this one. But fundamentally, it is the team that makes all this possible. And we can talk about the individual ingredients of the model and how we've built that and what we optimize for. But fundamentally, if you can't execute on that with the team that you just say, hey, go do great work and then get out of their way and then let them do what they're best at, that's the secret sauce in terms of what we've built as a team. So again, I think it really is all these things together, but none of it's possible without our team.
0: And you made the first decision of we're focusing on the reader rather than the advertiser. And then to take that a step deeper, when you're starting out, you mentioned it was your curiosity that was driving the content, and you attracted an audience that wanted to follow you there. As you build up this business, you have paying subscribers, you mentioned all the different stakeholders across investors and regulators. How much do the audience members drive the content today versus still your curiosity? And I'm sure that there's a lot of overlap there. But how do you think about that from a content strategy standpoint in terms of knowing what there's demand for versus giving yourself the freedom to produce what you want to produce?
1: I think it's incredibly important to listen to your audience, but don't give them too much power. Fundamentally, it is your own publication and your team's editorial judgment in terms of how you drive things. We have a rolling conversation with both our subscribers, our sources, and how they see the world and things that they're seeing. So you constantly have to be listening to what's going on around you. And look, our subscribers are C-suite decision makers and they're government officials and they're labor leaders. And they are people who are trying to run businesses and trying to get outside perspectives that are outside of the bubbles of their own organizations. So providing that is hugely important. So when we engage with them and hear from them about what we're doing, Yes, absolutely helps inform our coverage, 100%. But fundamentally, it has to be our ability to break down the inherent barriers and sensitivities that exist within the industry ecosystem. These are businesses with their own politics, small p, where someone is going to be indignant or pissed off about an approach, or they're mad at another stakeholder, or they're mad at someone else in their organization, and they're not going to stand up in a meeting and say it. There's all kinds of sensitivities in terms of whether working with regulators, well, you can't do that. But with us, they absolutely can. They feel they can vent, and frankly, a lot of people do, with how they're feeling and what they're seeing. So we get a very unfiltered view in terms of what's going on, aside from the politics, again, small p, of what's going on inside these organizations. So what we're able to do is have a much more holistic view based on each individual stakeholder's viewpoint, which again, is not filtered through the niceties of corporate relations or whatever, in terms of how people are maneuvering inside of an individual organization, both for themselves and for their teams or for the future of their respective enterprises. And I think that's just a function of being a good journalist. I think that any journalist would tell you that in terms of how you get a very different view than others do. So I think that because folks trust us to Understand how the industry works. What we've seen in terms of the overall dynamics of the industry, there is a decline in expert knowledge within the media space. I think that goes far beyond just the aviation and aerospace. So to be able to have a conversation with someone who does this professionally and say, Yes, I understand how your business works. And for the areas I don't understand, I want to learn. And that willingness to invest your time in what they do. And also, again, come back to that initial interest to dig in there allows you to have conversations that others might struggle to have.
2: This quality over quantity permeates through the whole of the air current. And for me, is the differentiating piece of what you do. And you've talked about it already really eloquently. I'm curious how nuts and bolts wise, you actually deliver that. You're working in an industry where you've got thousands of analysts all over the world covering Boeing, Airbus, the aviation industry. There are millions of enthusiasts out there thinking about it pretty much on a daily basis. And I was reading Boeing has been in the news again for the last month or so, and you've been all over it. How do you physically get close to the information and are then able to put together these pieces that are deeper than pretty much anywhere else you'd find? It
1: takes a really long time. The amount of time for 10,000 hours to become an expert in something, roughly. And I think there's a lot of that. And I think there's an impatience that we all have, especially on the internet, when everyone wants everything instantly. And I think when you're 22, 23, you want to be an instant expert and you want to have that. And I think it takes a long time to build that up, regardless of what industry you're in. So I think to create what we do, what we have to do is push ourselves from an editorial strategy perspective. You have to get past the individual facts. You can't ever disconnect yourself from them because that's fundamentally what guides you. But you have to be willing to not just say, here's what happened but why it happened. And once you go and think of the why as an equally important piece of the puzzle, not just what happened, that's when you can start doing the type of reporting that we're doing. And I think from an operational perspective, that's where it begins in terms of the reporting and what you go find. And look, I will speed my team up and I'll slow them down if I don't think they've got the why. Because we have to deliver the why. Because the facts are out there. And sometimes they're in the public domain. Sometimes they're buried and you got to go find them. But fundamentally, the why is where the value is in terms of pulling these pieces together. So that comes back to respecting the time of your audience. So the workflow is very interesting. And the one big piece of our business, because we have such a strict paywall, we don't allow copy and paste on the intercurrent. And it drives some people nuts. And we know that people probably have figured out ways to game the system and get around that. And Okay, fine, fair enough. And don't come kind of asking for me for any favors. If you're going to do that. It takes a certain type of person to go to that effort. It's true. Exactly. But what we realized early on was that copy and paste is an existential threat because on the internet, electrons are free for the most part. And if you can copy and paste it, it will move freely. So you at least have to spiritually and strategically say, no, that's not okay. You have to set that limit. And something that we realized back in, I think it was 2020, 2021, that within our workflow, we could also develop glossy, high quality PDF versions of everything we wrote. And there's some really great tools out there to do that, that are very, 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 they're free. Apple makes pages, which is a wonderful tool for that. So it really fit into our workflow. But what we realized was that within that, we actually created a new pillar of our business, which was selling these PDFs. Because if you didn't want to subscribe, you could have these PDFs, then people could either download them and the prices, we sell them for about $70 to $100, depending on the length of the piece. And you're not just paying for an individual article, you're paying for the rights to say, hey, I've got this PDF, I can send it to my team. It's that sharing and that scale of reach that becomes part of the business. And not to mention, I would love to do the math on it. I don't know if I have the ability to in terms of the numbers, but we know that our audience travels a lot. It's a very high-flying audience and they're on the road a lot. A lot of the times they're not connected. So what we wanted to be able to offer was the ability to have offline reading in a way that made sure that it allowed the business to grow and allowed the business to flourish. So it's been a really virtuous part and allowed us to create a more professionally focused publication and also a professional tier within our business that has, again, been based around those glossy magazine style PDFs that come along with what we do. So there a whole feature set that comes along with that. Like I said, a lot of this has been making mistakes and being experimental and knowing what works. And then if it works, keep going. If it doesn't, don't be afraid to say, hey, that didn't work but constantly be experimental and try new things that allow you to optimize the process of delivering the content.
0: On that point, I think it's very interesting because I often get caught up putting the cart before the horse with some of these things where you talk to Ben Thompson a lot about this and some of the dynamics with trying to stop people from copy and pasting and forwarding. And that's immediately what would come to my mind. How do we govern this? When in reality, Ben's proven you can create a successful business and you've built barriers. But When you think about the content itself and all of the value that's created versus that next iteration, which is improving the process, improving the aesthetics, the distribution types, all that, how much do you think comes from that second piece, that evolutionary chapter? And I guess to ask differently, if someone was starting out in the content business or starting a new publication, how much do you think that delivery method
1: matters versus the actual content itself? Is content king or is distribution king? If your content sucks, distribution doesn't matter. (laughs) All bets are up. But if you have really good content and you know that you've got that, I think the question is how you distribute it. And one of the early lessons that I knew instinctively, so my original blog that I published from 2007 to 2012 before I went to the journal, no longer exists online. It was taken offline because of a strategy change at publication. It still exists in the internet archive. I still have a link to all those pieces in the internet archive through the air current. So it exists, but it's not searchable through Google. You can't find it that way. So to say that was painful in losing four and a half years, five years of my editorial work when I was first starting out was incredibly challenging and really hurtful. What it also told me early on was that you have to own your own platform. The means of distribution matter so much once you have the quality figured out. So Right now, Substack is having a huge debate about platforming white nationalists and about Nazis and all that. And I think that's a huge challenge for those who have relied on Substack as an easy way to distribute their content. I don't have that issue. I don't have to worry about that. I've never had to worry about that because I've always controlled the platform. And the most important thing that I have is saying how the platform evolves. So we don't have to rely on anyone else for delivery. We don't have to rely on anyone else's algorithm. We do not live and die by that. And you cannot live and die by that because it is unpredictable. And again, if you lean into that, there are business models that are based on high volume SEO. And guess what? AI is going to kill you first. You're literally going to be dead in the gutter because someone scraped and did a chat GPT of your story with better SEO and your margin's gone. So you can't be at the whim of that. And again, when you come back to our model, which is having a relationship with your subscribers and your readers. The email addresses that we collect as part of people subscribing, we tell our readers when there's something new. We send an email and no one can tell me when that gets through, when that gets sent. That doesn't get raised or lowered on a search page. It is a direct relationship. And we have push notifications. We have several thousand folks who have subscribed for free for push notifications. We have our group of subscribers. But fundamentally, being able to control that is so important. And we've been approached by others like, "Hey, do you want to syndicate your content?" I'm like, "No, I don't." They say, "Okay, yeah, we'll do it, but it's for this number." And then they're like, "No, no, no, we're like thinking like four cents a piece." I'm like, "No, no, that's not going to work. That's not how this model works." So that has allowed us to maintain both content and distribution, and I think that fundamentally is the modern media
2: model this has been such a clear seminar on the most important things when it comes to running a niche media business. I saw you say or write somewhere once that you know at this point, and you've talked a bit about it, exactly which knobs to turn to tank a media business. I know how to break one, you said, which I loved and it really caught my attention. And so I'm wondering as closing thoughts, whether there are any knobs that we haven't talked about, and you've been largely positive about what you should do rather than what you shouldn't do. But is there anything else that sticks to your mind as to big no-no's or things that, yeah, if you do that, then you don't really have a hope? Someone asked me
1: the other day, if you had a pile of money starting out, would you have built the air Current differently? And I don't think I would have. Yes, there are certain things that would have been easier, no doubt, because we bootstrapped it. But fundamentally, it just took as long as it was going to take. And the speed of the development and the growth and the evolution of an organization can't be pushed too fast. And I have the scars to show for it. And I got laid off from CNN because of that. So I'm incredibly sensitive to the idea of how quickly we grow. And look, the questions in my mind remain about scale and how do you scale a business? I can't make two of myself. I can't make two of any of my colleagues. And they only have the same 24 hours in the day that I have. You got to sleep and you got to take care of yourself. And we like our families and you have to let people be people. Also, that's really important here as well. You can't grind them into dust. I think if you take your eye off of the prize, which is quality, all bets are off. Again, I said the joke about knowing what knobs to turn. Yeah. When you start optimizing for the short term, you will have success maybe briefly. But again, the short term ends.
2: How do you balance that, which I wholeheartedly agree with, with setting a vision for the team to follow? Because naturally, at the beginning of every year, a lot of people like to talk about how big could this possibly be, et cetera, et cetera. That's nice and shiny, something to go after. Whereas the reality in most media businesses, no, 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 just keep focusing on producing quality stuff day in, day out, and the rest will largely take care of itself. But that can be hard to motivate a team around.
1: You'd be surprised. It's actually not. No, when you tell someone, my job is to get out of your way and remove the barriers to you doing what I know you're great at and what you know you're great at and what you love doing, good things can't help but happen. So my job is to manage. 2024 is about scaling for us and managing the scale as the team grows and how we manage the operational efficiency. Efficiency, literally like the ability to, where my team is producing great work and making sure that comes through the editorial pipeline quickly and efficiently and with the level of quality that we have and maintaining that and making sure that I'm not standing in the way of that, either from an editing perspective or QA perspective or whatever, but that we keep that going. And I'll be honest, that's a work in progress. We're trying to answer that right now. So ask me again in 12 months how we did but it is not easy. I think it's having a very clear editorial vision and a very clear strategy for what you know is working. And by the way, all of that is, hindsight is 2020. I didn't know if it was going to work. I'll be honest. I think it's been reinforced over time that it is working. And I'm very clear-eyed about that with my team, especially as we watch other publications struggle with layoffs and business model and all that. So doubling down on that is knowing that that's foundational. We've got that rolling. When you don't have to worry about the existential crises of whether or not you're going to be able to do what you do tomorrow or the day after or a year from now, you can actually focus on the flywheel effect of every piece we put out is just going to be a little better than the last one. It's going to be a little more efficient in terms of the process of respecting the amount of energy that goes into producing something of this quality, but also that we're just going to do it better every time. And we have gotten really, really good at it. And this team is incredible and watching them all work together and working with them. And especially when news is breaking and people are looking for information and guidance to watch that take place is by far and away the most satisfying part of all of this. When you can bring people who are great at what they do together and watch them collaborate and bring the passion, the same passion that I've always wanted to bring to my coverage of this business together. It is just incredibly, incredibly energizing and people will end their day feeling like, Oh, I'm exhausted. And I think this team, I think we all felt this continually is that we finish a day and yeah, I'm tired. It was a long day, but I feel energized by that level of investment that we make in each other and the ability to say, let's go kick ass and doing it again and again and again and again and getting better at it each and every time and learning new things and building something
2: awesome. So when you put all that together, it's just magic. A cool closing thought. You've got to love the reps in this business and you certainly do. We really admire what you've built but more so how you have built it and how you think about the media business more generally. So thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. We've booked you in already for next year to cover the scaling progress that you'll make this year and no doubt it'll be a success.
1: I hugely appreciate it. Gents, this is so much fun. Thanks for letting me. It's a good therapy session when I to get to like step back because i kind of in the weeds on a lot of this stuff. Just get back up to 30,000 feet and just look at the whole playing field.
2: Thanks a million we're always here for you amen
0: thanks john we got another aviation media episode i think that's the third in our arsenal <laughs> now so we're gonna have to split out the aviation collection on the colossus website and as our aviation guy that's what i consider you what are your immediate takeaways there? we didn't get too much into the actual planes themselves but just in the world of flying what were your thoughts
2: there yeah, which is a shame, actually. And we could put them next to our golf crew as well. <laughs> We're really emphasizing two different niches on this particular podcast. I really enjoyed it. There's so much clarity in the way that he talked, particularly around the subscription model and just generally building a niche media business. And he's worked in all sectors of it. He's had a blog, then he went into the traditional Wall Street Journal, journalism, learned how to do that side of things and then decided or got laid off and had the scars of that and then built his own independent business. And like I said it in the intro, this feels like the Stratechery of the Skies to me. It's a very similar playbook and those two had a really good conversation about this. But the way that is very slow, very patient, deliberate analysis, reporting on the industry and people pay good money for it, I find it really interesting. How about you? The stratechery of the skies, you're getting better and better at these things. (laughs) That could go right in the pitch deck if
0: he ever goes out with one of those. (laughs) No, I felt the same way. And I will steal something that you said to me right before we hit record. But I'm completely in agreement with your comment that for the purists that have gone through the scars and the battles and the challenges of building something in media, I think this one will resonate. And we kept the conversation going for another 10 to 15 minutes afterwards. And it was a little bit more of the same just in terms of the optimism. And this is incredible that we get to do this. But there's such funny challenges associated with it. And it's like, Oh, is this what I'm going to keep doing? And is this what I'm going to keep doing? And is this what I'm gonna... all these little things that you think about that are involved in your day to day when you run like, small teams that you have to really, 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 really consider? I think that's right. So much just resonated with me. It felt so relatable.
2: A 100%. And there was that one point where he said, Every year over the air currents life has felt like a unique strategic challenge that they've changed direction. And that really spoke to me, where I feel that in our business, classes where every year we have a different focus. And it's not like in a bigger business where you can have a North Star revision and you're always working towards it and there are incremental changes you're making. It's like you can move, I don't know, 15, 20 degrees in a slightly different direction to think, okay, this year we're going to capture this piece. And then next year, you kind of at the end of the year, you reflect and think, okay, what did we do well? What did we do badly? Where's the market? What should we go after this year? And when he said that, clicked for me. Yeah. Say no more. Clicked for me as well.
0: (laughs) Those exercises, when you reflect on them, you learn a lot by changing focus. It's like a New Year's resolution in some ways where, sure, most of them fail, but you're usually getting something out of it. So it's not a bad exercise that I would ever tell people not to do. But sometimes I think to myself, well, the core of the business has stayed exactly the same. So you worry about all this fringe stuff and it's like, Is that what I should be worrying about? I like some of his tactical stuff too. Just the writing for curiosity and how that evolves over time. Never just writing for your audience. You got to keep it to yourself because if you write for your audience, things can go awry. I generally agree with that. And then the other one was using social media to really pull in the enthusiasts and communicate with them, which I think that's a reoccurring theme that I've been reading from a lot of people recently, but Really tapping into those people that are fans and are engaging with you. If you engage with them, I think there's a lot of really positive things that come on the back of that. So it was a good reminder. I need to hear it from his own voice.
2: Yeah. I read between the lines there and thought that he's talking about the cheapskates, the ones that won't pay for the content, but enjoy his insights. (laughs) We're talking to the masses and a few of them might convert over time as they find themselves in the aviation industry or with a few more extra disposable dollars to pay for the content. It's true. The other thing is the timing of this episode. With there was a piece over the weekend that Danny Crichton, who now works at Lux, but I think was the editor of TechCrunch, he wrote a really interesting piece about how the TechCrunch subscription. I think he launched it in 2018. They built a subscription business on a media business that already had events and ad-supported content side. And they announced last week that the subscription business was folding because it just wasn't worth continuing. And he talked about the reasons why and how he felt about it and just generally the landscape of media. And it rhymes so well with what John was talking about. Obviously, John was talking about the benefits and how he's managed to do it well. And Danny was going over what happened at TechCrunch and effectively saying, it failed because you can't get enough really good people to pump out consistently good articles that people will pay for at a rate which makes sense for the business. You can hire the best people in the world to do this, but your subscription rate is going to have to be so high for it to make economic sense over a very long period of time. And he was like, ultimately, that's the piece that stumbled TechCrunch and... I just, the juxtaposition of these two things is so interesting because often we talk to people that have been successful and then you think about, okay, how might we use a subscription in our own business? Well, the reality is like often this stuff falls on people. And Adam Hansman said exactly the same thing. Like key thing about the Athletics was we had really good people. They didn't make money for the life of their business. So that is a huge challenge that I think we couldn't overemphasize in any of the discussions that we have.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I think that where you've seen Danny mentioned this. I didn't specifically hear it on this episode that we did, but John didn't specifically mention this, but Danny said, when you write about the big names an like Apple or Google, you get a ton of traffic. And those basically subsidize everything else. And I think about it as there's film directors that have often said, make one for them and then one for me. You need to make that big commercial production that's going to sell a ton of box office and drive people into the theaters, even if it's not the art that you want to make. And then the next one, you go around and make one for yourself, which is a little more indie... It's going to get less ticket sales, but that's the thing that you wanted to make. And there's this cult following and maybe the economics don't work out perfectly, but you balance the two together. That keeps you going. That keeps you in the game. And I think you could look at that cynically and just say, you ah, either got to have a good business or you should do all one for them. But I think that then a lot of people would just quit. So finding that balance is super, super important. And I think you can't ignore the human element of it all.
2: But yeah, we see it all the time on our podcast. don't we? Invest Like the Best is one example. Business Breakdowns is a really good example, particularly in January. I think we had Train, Patek Philippe, <laughs> Samsung. Visma. Yeah, Visma. So a couple of names that people probably had never heard of that won't do anything to grow our podcast and a couple of names that might attract some people who are more loosely tethered to that podcast. Yep, it reigns true. I
0: really enjoyed it. I think there's... Something really interesting about this segment of the world, and it's funny because he mentioned working with Jess from the information at his previous role, and even what you mentioned about the strategy of the skies, I still have a tough time accepting the skies or just aviation in general (laughs) as big enough to earn its own niche. I think of Ben as like tech broadly, TMT broadly, the information has such a wide range of things that they can cover. So to be more niche than that and still able to carve out space, there's something very interesting about sectors that have enough interest, demand from really business players who are willing to spend substantial amounts on subscription that are pretty interesting to think about.
2: Do you think that proves that you can never be niche enough or it proves that this industry just has a ton of fans and it does seem to have an outsized number of people that just love planes than say the trucking industry so my instinct is that
0: you can be too niche and if you pick the wrong niche it's just not economically viable so you can never be too niche if your goal is to just do something that's personally fulfilling because you will find interesting people but i think if you want to make it economically viable you can get too niche and i think honestly when I think about aviation and what makes it ripe for this type of publication is because aviation has evolved where there's this huge financial sector built around it. So it's kind of similar to housing and real estate in general, where once there's standards, there's mortgages, there's a pretty standard methodology of you can borrow 80% against the value of whatever you're purchasing. And that's just generally understood. So it turns it into almost commoditization. And once you have something that's commoditized... You can lend more against it. You can secure it. You can create all these different financial instruments that resulted in the real estate blow up, I would argue. But when you have sectors like that, and aviation is actually similar where you have aircraft leasing, you have teardowns, you have all of these unique tax advantaged ways to invest in the aircraft sector. There's some stuff abroad that's really unique. So it's this huge financial industry on top of being pretty interesting from a consumer perspective, the enthusiasts. But I almost would argue if the enthusiasts were gone, the consumers were gone it would still be just as interesting because of those other dynamics. Honestly, I mean, this might be just me applying my own bias towards it, but I think it has something to do with the
2: financial sector that's built around it. It's a very good point. And actually, (laughs) it reminds you of something completely tangential, where we were laughing ahead of the episode, because John, if you've never been to the air currents website, you should and they put all the safety stuff out there for free. So if you're interested in the Boeing pieces over the last month, and what's going on there with the door that fell out, you should go and read it. it is fascinating. But the thing that you'll see when you go on there is that you cannot copy and paste anything. And I've never seen it on any other site ever, but he talked about it somewhere last year. It might have been actually with Ben Thompson. And they both agreed that bankers were the worst people at copying and pasting content on the internet, which we both found quite amusing. Yes, I can speak to that where
0: some of those early newsletters, <laughs> the Gartman letter, which is a classic newsletter that went out and somebody would have a subscription and there'd be a lot of printouts done. <laughs> It's an interesting thing where industry players battle over who has real power in the relationships and they seem to try to flex their muscles a little bit more. That was a funny comment. I was thinking about bringing that up somewhere in the conversation, but <laughs> did not end up doing that. Yeah, it's tough in the conversation. My point on, I would immediately assume that that would be such a huge issue with the business model, but that's silly to think because Ben would have the same exact problem and he really can't govern that well, but he has managed to build a very nice business at Stratechery. And John has gone to maybe different lengths to stop some of
2: that stuff from happening. But
0: yeah, it's quite impressive.
2: Yeah, maybe one day they'll do the Netflix password sharing thing and an extra $100 million will make themselves available to their little niche media businesses. That was all I had. Really enjoyed it. He's building an excellent business, thinking about things incredibly well and in great detail. So very good to have him on agreed yeah he was one of the better business
0: breakdowns guests just in terms of being able to give us the narrative on boeing so make sure to check out that episode as well and i think you would be happy hearing it and especially hearing it before all the recent stuff that's happened with boeing so it plays in just as a good reminder of all the things that have been happening over there so yeah enjoy that one with john always love these stories where they feel very relatable in many ways yeah see you all next week see you next week